Hey, true crime fanatics, I'm Jake Barton, creator of the history storytelling podcast called Historium, and you're listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Blueberry offers the best media hosting, accurate listening stats, and their all-new PowerPress Deluxe sites, a no-setup WordPress website for your podcast, and it comes with all of the necessary links to share your show with the world built right in. Head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up for media hosting, a PowerPress Deluxe site, get that podcast you've been dreaming about started, and get your first month for free. That's www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream. And now, on to the show. Warning. This episode contains details involving strong language, sexually explicit content, and themes involving teenage bullying and suicide, and may not be suitable for some listeners. Some of the names in this story have been changed, and others will not be mentioned at all to protect the identity of the juveniles. It was Labor Day weekend of a brand new school year of 2012. Audrey's friend, I'll call her Laura, told her that her parents were going to be out of town for the weekend and she would have the house to herself. Audrey and Laura had become really close that particular summer, attending small parties or kickbacks as they're called, drinking and flirting with boys any chance they had anywhere parents were not. So this weekend, Laura was going to host the kickback. The girls, both 15 at the time, told their respective parents that they were planning on spending the weekend at each other's houses. Laura at Audrey's and Audrey at Laura's. And their parents would be none the wiser. Audrey's mom had no idea there was going to be no parents at Laura's house to chaperone their sleepover. So when Audrey's mom dropped her off at Laura's, she assumed the girls would be doing typical teenage sleepover stuff. Movies, pizza, junk food, until the early morning hours when they'd finally give in to their fatigue. And of course, sleep in past noon. What Audrey's mom didn't know was that Laura had already started to spread the word. Kick back at her place, no parents. Audrey was dropped off and soon, nearly a dozen other kids showed up. And these were the popular kids. All the cute girls and all the hot guys. All of them ready to drink. Some of them brought some bottles of hard liquor. Underaged, of course, some of them stole the liquor from local stores. Some of them were able to bribe an adult to purchase the stuff from a liquor store for them. They also had some hard liquor options in Laura's parents' liquor cabinet, which they also raided. And what did these kids use to mix their drinks? Gatorade, of course. Unless they could handle it straight, which some of them had, apparently. Audrey drank everyone under the table. Around 9 p.m., some of Audrey's friends back from middle school started to show up and they came to find a party that didn't seem like much of a party at all. There was no music, not much in the way of food, 
a few pizza remnants on the floor. Everyone was pretty much sloppy drunk already. When Laura had greeted them as they arrived, she was so drunk she wasn't even really able to recognize some of her own friends standing in the doorway. One of the new arrivals was best friends with Audrey in middle school, and she could see right away that she was messed up, stumbling around, couldn't barely walk, and largely incoherent. She was taking random shots of whatever alcohol was available and making out with several different boys on the sofa. Her friends were certainly taken aback by what they were seeing. I mean, they had heard about her drinking pretty heavily. They had just never witnessed this before. It was a shock to see their friend in such a state. She wasn't really the same person they used to know in middle school. She had changed so much. This just wasn't the girl they knew. And soon, things just got too weird for them. The whole place was a mess. There was food and garbage everywhere. People were stumbling around. And they just felt awkward and uncomfortable being there. So they decided to leave. What would go on next would have to be fitted together piece by piece with fragments of stories, hazy memories, maybe some half-truths from drunken teenagers, and whatever they were able to recall scrolling through their phones, messages, pictures, and social media. One of the boys Audrey had been making out with was so drunk, he ended up vomiting in the kitchen sink. And of course, someone else tossed Audrey's iPhone into the vomit. But Audrey was much too drunk to notice or care in the moment. Three of the boys whom she had known since middle school and one of their female friends helped her get upstairs to lay down in one of the bedrooms. The female friend left the room, but the three boys stayed. They stayed in the room. And what they would do next would set in motion a torrent of events that sent one California teen into a sad, tragic, downward spiral of anguish, indignity, and humiliation from which she could not recover. In today's episode of California Dreaming, the tale of sexting, shaming, bullying, and Audrey. There is a very powerful documentary on Netflix entitled Audrey and Daisy, a film that takes a look at what happens when sexual assault and social media are combined. There are things like these that can spark a dialogue about the seriousness of sexual assault. For example, movements such as the Me Too hashtag last year, or when the survivor who was attacked by Brock Turner, known as the Stanford Rapist, a case that sparked outrage over the slap on the wrist Turner received after sexually assaulting an unconscious woman behind a dumpster. Her riveting 7,244-word statement of her attack went viral, 
as well as brought about a much-needed conversation about reform, namely sexual assault legislation reform. In this case, social media gave her a powerful platform, and her voice was heard, and it was her attacker who has to live in shame, live in the shadows for what he's done. However, social media has also brought about a new age of bullying, also called cyberbullying, shaming, and victim-blaming as well. We exist in this social media-driven world now, with nearly everyone having a cell phone with a camera, almost all universally linked in one way or another to some kind of social media platform. And despite the strength it can empower some with, it often works to the detriment of most. When friends and peers who have had a bit too much to drink or have partied way too hard decide to take and post pictures and videos of sexual assaults in progress, the victim is often shut down amid an onslaught of shaming and bullying in the aftermath. And many times, justice can't or won't be sought. Victims are often pummeled by an onslaught of bullying, character assassination, shaming, and name-calling, oftentimes lasting much longer than the actual assault itself. The photos and videos of their assaults can often bring about unimaginable levels of mockery and ridicule. And sometimes, despite the trail of messages, photos, conversations, and posts, there isn't always enough evidence to bring about a criminal charge. And if there is one, you end up with Brock Turner levels of sentencing. And again, the survivor is victimized, marginalized, and disregarded, left broken to somehow figure out how to go on in this new damaged reality. Audrey and Daisy brought back to the surface the need for awareness and the need for a conversation about sexual assault. That we need to pay attention to the three-fourths of the women under the age of 30 who report having experienced online bullying, trolling, sexual harassment, unwanted contact, and threats. We need to listen. And if you haven't seen Audrey and Daisy, I'd recommend it if you could. But if you haven't, you don't need to in order to be on this journey with me today. I'll tell you about it. Well, at least some of it. I'm going to focus on Audrey's story today. I may go over Daisy's story as well, sometime in the near future. But to be completely honest, I don't think I could tell you both of their stories as they deserve to be told in one episode. So for now, we are going to get to know Audrey. We left off with Audrey in an upstairs bedroom at her friend's house, passed out from excessive drinking, three boys in the room with her, and her phone soaked in vomit downstairs in the kitchen sink. When she woke up the next morning, she had no memory of the previous evening. She didn't know how she got into the bedroom. She didn't know where her clothes were at. When she looked down at her body, she had drawings all over her, including near and around her genital area. In a deposition given by one of the boys, he was made to describe 
what was drawn with the markers. He claims it was meant to be a joke, that it seemed like it would be something funny to do because Audrey was his friend and she had drawn on him in class before. There wasn't meant to be any harm in it, he says. It's just a thing you do when someone falls asleep. You color on them. He says it wasn't meant to shame her or to be mean. He was made to read a text message exchange about a drawing on Audrey between himself and another friend who was not present at the party. The friend asked him what went down. He replied that he couldn't tell Audrey if he told him and his friend agreed. His next text read, She passed out and we colored half her face black and colored all over her body like her boobs. And it said blank was here and blank was here. Remember all the names have been redacted or changed. His text went on. And then her pants by her vagina, it said blank was here. And it said harder on her leg with an arrow pointed at her vagina. And on her back, it said anal and had an arrow down to her ass. And there was just Sharpie everywhere. It was hilarious. Ha ha ha. His friend texted back and said, so technically you stripped her and drew everywhere. He texted back and said, not just me, all the guys. These are the things Audrey saw in her body when she went into the bathroom after having woke up, not knowing how she ended up there. Looking in the mirror, all this stuff scrawled all over her face and body. Borrowing a friend's phone, she called her mom. And she asked her to please come pick her up. Audrey's mom was surprised that she wanted to be picked up because it was earlier than she had thought she'd want to come home. When she got in the car, Audrey was unusually quiet. They went to lunch, but Audrey did not want to eat. Later that same day, she locked herself in her bathroom for a really long time. And then at dinner, that's when mom noticed a long line of ink on Audrey's cleavage. Her mom asked her about it, but Audrey brushed aside the topic. But when she was back up in her room, she was in a panic, trying to figure out what happened to her the night before. She got on the phone with one of her friends who was at the party and explained how she had woken up naked and covered in Sharpie graffiti. Her friend had no information to give her other than she seemed to be pretty drunk. And as the evening wore on, it was apparent, based on the Facebook exchanges that she had had with her friends, that she was growing increasingly desperate and troubled, particularly at the insensitivity of her friends. Audrey and one of the boys had an exchange on Facebook Messenger that went something like this. She said that she needed to talk. He said what? She said one word, marker. He asked, what about Marker? She said, you know what I'm talking about, that she wasn't upset at the fact that they drew on her, but she's mad at where stuff was drawn, that he knew how drunk she was. I swear to God, if you still have those pictures, I'll kill you, she said. He said, they're deleted, and I didn't take them. I promise it wasn't me. 
and I'm sorry about the marker. She asked him why did he let that happen? Does he know how people view her now? In another message exchanged with another boy from the party, he asked her if the other person she had been messaging still had any photos. She said that he said no, but I think it's BS. He said you're fine. I'll make sure nothing goes around. She said it's gonna get out. It always does. Especially with all the people who were there. In another message exchange with another boy, the conversation didn't go as well. He said that she was one horny mofo. She replied that she was asleep and people did stuff to her. He said, honestly, like really no joke, everyone knows. She replied, OMG, WTF, how? He said, LOL, that stuff gets around. Ha ha, everyone knows mostly everything. Ha ha ha. She said, oh my God, I effing hate people. In another chat exchange with another boy, she asked him what people were saying so she could clear up any lies. That she was so pissed. She wanted to know if he knew about the marker thing. She went back to the first person that she had been messaging, the one she suspected who took the photos and accused him of sharing the pictures with his friends. She said the whole school knows. Do you know how people view me now? I effed up and I can't do anything to fix it. One of my best friends hates me, and now I have a reputation I could never get rid of. He messaged back and said, everyone messes up. Audrey, this will blow over before the week's over. You know Saratoga people make a big deal for a week and then forget about it. Audrey messaged back, you have no idea what it's like to be a girl. In another Facebook exchange, she said, my life is over. I ruined my life, and I don't even remember how. The whole school knows. My life is over. Before we go on from here and what's to follow, I want to go back in time and visit where this all started and how Audrey came to find herself at this place in her life. Audrey was born on May 27, 1997, to parents Larry and Sheila Pott. She was Sheila's only child. Her parents divorced before she was five. Her father, who operated a commercial security business, remarried and had three more children. And for most of her life, she bounced back and forth between their homes. According to Audrey's friends, she didn't get along that well with her stepmom, who was much more of a disciplinarian than her own mother, who was much more lackadaisical with the discipline. But for the most part, she was described as a happy child. But something shifted in her overall demeanor during her freshman year at Saratoga High School. She grew unhappy, and her parents were perplexed by the sudden change in their generally happy child. She started to miss school, so much so that she started failing classes. Try as she might, her mother was unable to figure out what was causing these sudden academic struggles. She was certainly capable of passing those classes. She retook them during summer school and earned A's across the board. 
her mom started to suspect that she may have been getting bullied, so she requested a meeting with the school officials. She didn't think the high school was doing enough to address the bullying issues. She asked the school officials if they thought there was a bullying problem, if this was something that was going on with her daughter. The counselor all but blew off her concerns and even went so far to suggest that Audrey try to get a different group of friends. It wasn't as though Audrey's mom had come up with the suspicions of bullying out of nowhere. For the past couple of years, going back to middle school, Audrey struggled with issues with her body. By the time she was 13, she had developed 34 double D breasts. This caused her to gain a great deal of attention from the boys in class. But all it did for her was to cause her to grow increasingly self-conscious about her body. Then during her freshman year, she became obsessed with becoming super skinny, like many of her friends that she hung out with. Her friends quickly realized that Audrey had developed some serious body image issues. She would refuse to eat in public or around her friends. She would almost always skip breakfast. If she got hungry, she would hide and eat so nobody could see her. Some of her friends became worried and started making her eat because she'd be starving in school. Reflecting upon these eating issues that Audrey had, her friends speculated it had to do with the several years of bullying that had strong sexual implications. And for some reason, it seemed those middle school years when Audrey had blossomed beyond most girls of her age were worse than most, according to Audrey's mom, who had had a conversation about it with one of her teachers that year. That teacher told Audrey's mom that the class of 2011 was one of the worst group of mean kids she'd had encountered in her entire career. That same group of boys would ridicule and shame the girls in their class about their bodies. They were the same ones that were pressuring them to send nude pictures of themselves to them. The boys would dare them, asking for a bra or no bra. And more often than not, these girls would send them because they wanted the boys to like them. They didn't want to seem uncool. All the while, not really having a grasp on the long-term consequences of snapping that nude pic. As it would turn out, one of those boys in that room that Labor Day weekend drawing on Audrey's naked body and taking pictures was one of the middle school boys that had spearheaded the bra or no bra dare. So back to that evening when Audrey was escorted up those stairs, blacked out from having drank way too much hard liquor. Sharpie graffiti wasn't the only thing that was done to her body without her knowledge or consent. In that same videotape deposition featured in the documentary, the one who was made to read his text message exchanges, where he described all of the drawings that were made on her, he also admitted to penetrating her with his finger. Another witness also stated that he witnessed his friend committing this act on Audrey. He said it was like a second, and that stated that she said harder, and that she liked it. He was asked how he knew that she liked it, and he said because she was saying harder and laughing. 
And this would bring what happened to Audrey that night to a whole other level. This wasn't just a stupid teenage Sharpie prank. This was a sexual assault. Audrey began her sophomore year two days after that faithful night. She knew those pictures of her were being shared around the school. Pictures of her naked with all of those Sharpie drawings all over her. In an effort to avoid some of her friends, she skipped some classes she knew they'd be in. Then one of her friends told her that she had seen a bunch of kids huddled around the phone. The phone of the guy who had promised the pictures were deleted. And her friend was pretty sure that they were looking at pictures of Audrey at that party. For the time being, Audrey pushed it out of her mind as much as she could. She, for the most part, attended school regularly that week, and she had on a brave face. But behind it all, she was devastated and tormented by what was circulating around the school, and she could not escape it. Within a few days of school starting, a friend had noticed some cuts on her arms, She claimed they were caused by a broken vase at home. She was teased later that day by one of her friends who shouted at her loudly in class, I heard you cut yourself. Audrey, mortified, began to cry. The following weekend, for all intents and purposes, everything about Audrey appeared to be okay. She went out and she saw some of her friends They had even visited the home of one of the boys who had allegedly assaulted her the previous weekend. She appeared to be having fun, smiling, happy. Was all of this behind her? No, not really. It was a front. On September 12, 2012, Audrey Pott hanged herself in her bathroom Just eight days after that party, she was 15 years old. On that day, she texted her mom in the middle of the school day around noon, and her mom received a series of messages, and one of them said, I can't do this anymore. Her mom messaged back and said, What do you mean? Audrey replied, Can you pick me up? When they got home, her mom suggested that she go inside and calm down. And she would come talk to her after a few minutes. Audrey had spent some part of that afternoon in her room on her computer when her mom finally went up to check on her. She knocked on the door, asking her how she was doing, but there was no answer. Her mom opened the door and saw her daughter hanging from the shower. She cut her down and attempted to get her out of the bathtub, but she wasn't able to get her all the way out. She called 911 and paramedics arrived within a couple of minutes. She begged them to save her daughter, but it was too late. Audrey was gone. As Audrey's parents grieved for their daughter, 
they were completely confounded as to why. Why had their vibrant, popular, seemingly happy 15-year-old taken her own life? What could have been going on that was so terrible that this was the only way out for her? Well, as it were, at the time that Audrey hanged herself, neither one of her parents had any idea of what had happened at that party a week earlier. They weren't aware of any of it. They didn't know how drunk she'd been, that she was stripped, photographed, and assaulted. And all of this, including the pictures, had been spread all over Saratoga High School. It wasn't until a couple of days after Audrey's death when some of her closest friends paid her mom a visit. They had something they needed to tell her. Something Audrey's mom never saw coming. They said, there's more to this than you know. With that, they spilled the beans as to the entire story of what went down that night she went to spend the night at her friend's house on Labor Day weekend. I don't know what Audrey's friends told Sheila. I don't know what her immediate reaction was to this news that she was receiving. As soon as she found out, though, she rushed up to Audrey's room and immediately began searching through her phone, texts, emails, and Facebook page. And it was on Facebook where she saw all of those haunting messages that I talked about earlier. Meanwhile, at the high school, Saratoga police, in conjunction with the school administration, decided to wait one week, the week of September 17th, before beginning an investigation in order to allow the students and the staff to mourn Audrey's death. But Audrey's closest friends, they were not going to wait. They knew they needed to speak to the school administrators immediately, so they did. The day after Audrey's death, one of her friends spoke up and told everything that she knew about that party at Laura's house, what had happened to Audrey, how they had drawn all over her while she was naked and passed out, and how the kids at school had pictures of her and were spreading them around. A sheriff's deputy was called and obtained a letter from the school outlining the statement that Audrey's friend had made about the party. But no one from the school contacted Audrey's parents. As I said, they ended up hearing about it from Audrey's friends as well. I can't believe the school didn't contact their parents with this information. They were aware of what happened the very next day after Audrey's death, and they did not disclose this really, really important piece of evidence. The idea of the school keeping this under wraps, I find this to be almost as disturbing as what those boys had done to Audrey, if not more so. I might be able to excuse away thoughtless teenage behavior which, by the way, I'm not. But the school administration? There are no excuses for this kind of an attempt at an orchestrated cover-up. 
I don't know if they would have ever told Audrey's parents if not for her friends who spoke up for her. So by the time investigators got around to talking to students, rumors were spreading rampantly around the school. Who was involved? Who was getting called into the office? Was anyone getting in trouble? Were the police going to arrest someone? Students were warning each other to shut their Facebooks down quickly, that cops were going to look at them in everyone's pages. There had been lots of messages going around Facebook. Some of them, of course, to Audrey before her death. A few of them acknowledging the potential for leaving behind a trail of evidence, not wanting to say anything about what had happened, and leaving a digital trail that may lead back to them. On September 14th, police pulled a student out of class, interviewed him, and issued him a criminal misdemeanor citation, and then turned him over into his father's custody. They interviewed two more students and issued them citations as well, then moved forward in their investigations. When law enforcement executed a search warrant on the homes of the boys who were cited, they discovered all of their cell phones were either lost or broken. This would cause the investigation to drag on for months while police worked to uncover whatever digital information they could in order to charge the teens with the most serious charges, sexual battery and possession of child pornography. One of the students involved was immediately kicked off the football team. So his parents pulled him out of Saratoga High School enrolling him in a school in a different city where he was placed on their football team. The other two boys stayed at Saratoga High School. And seven months after Audrey's death, the three 16-year-old boys were arrested on April 11, 2013. Two of them pulled from their classes at Saratoga High, and the other pulled out of his class at Christopher High. All three were arrested on suspicion of two felony charges and one misdemeanor involving the sexual assault and the distribution of pornographic images of a minor. Their attorneys right away publicly defended the three, insisting that there was no connection between what had happened at the party and with Audrey's suicide, but that was going to be a tough sell. Her parents insisted there was nothing else so distressing in her life that would cause her to want to take her own life. This was it. The things that happened to her at that party and the events that followed, and it was apparent in her desperate messages on Facebook. It was so obvious that she was devastated and humiliated over what had happened. She was upset over the pictures and that they were being distributed to everyone at school. And Audrey's parents were going to make sure Everyone was aware of what happened to their daughter. And the only way they were going to do that, to raise awareness about what happened, was to go public with the story, with Audrey's story. They weren't going to keep Audrey's identity a guarded secret. Audrey was going to be their way of bringing awareness to the violence that she was subjected to, as well as the cyberbullying, and all of the things that came as a result of that. Audrey's parents felt certain the only way for there to be real, meaningful change was if the world knew her name and 
knew her story. Incidentally, Audrey's organs were harvested and donated. Now let's talk a little bit about the school's response. The criticism over their handling of Audrey's death was exacting. It came to light that apparently, Audrey reported bullying a year before the incident at the Labor Day weekend party. A couple days after the arrest of the three boys, the school administration finally broke their long silence on the matter. They defended themselves against the accusations that they ignored Audrey when she went to tell them she was being bullied. They defended their decision to not expel the three students involved with what happened to Audrey at that party. They stressed the fact that the incident, meaning Audrey's suicide, is under investigation and did not happen on campus. Therefore, that made it a private matter for the family, not the school. The school stated that in reviewing all of the records related to Audrey, they found no reports that either Audrey or her parents claimed that there had been any bullying going on. Her parents insisted Audrey had made a bullying report as recent as five months prior to her suicide. The statement read, Keeping our school safe and free from bullying is a high priority for all of us. We share a common responsibility to stand up to and speak out about inappropriate harassing behavior whenever we see it, hear about it, or view it on the internet. Their statement also highlighted the several points related to the case. On its silence during the week the arrests were made, the incident was not school-related, and the district cannot discuss student discipline cases. On discipline, the students under investigation for the alleged sexual battery weren't immediately expelled or removed from campus because it wasn't immediately clear that the off-campus incident was connected to school activities or attendance as the law requires for a school district to impose discipline. On the football team, two of the three suspects in the alleged sexual assault were kicked off the football team as a result of the criminal investigation. A third suspect transferred to another school. On the photos, it remains unclear the extent to which sexually explicit photos of Audrey were circulated at school, causing her embarrassment. On the announcement of Audrey's death, the family claims that the principal publicized Audrey's suicide while she was still on life support, which caused her parents a great deal of severe emotional distress as they began receiving messages of condolences before Audrey was even pronounced dead. But the school insisted they had Audrey's family's permission to make the announcement, and they did not mention it was a suicide. On moving forward, two boys who are still attending Saratoga High School will not return to campus until the criminal case is resolved and may be expelled if found guilty. Along with the arrest of the three suspects, Audrey's family continued being on the offensive, moving forward with their efforts to bring attention, as well as a certain level of justice, in the wake of Audrey's suicide by filing a suit against the district, the suspect's families, the family whose home hosted the party, and a wrongful death claim against the school asserting that Audrey endured bullying and sexual harassment from students that were not being investigated by the school 
despite the fact that both Audrey and her parents raised concerns about it months before her suicide. The school board immediately denied all claims made by the parents. Audrey's family also moved forward in pursuing new legislation entitled Audrey's Law, and all of this I will get into more detail after I discuss the criminal case against these three suspects. In January of 2015, the three defendants, who were charged as juveniles, pleaded guilty to sexually assaulting Audrey and taking naked photos of her, both of which are felonies. Two of the boys were sentenced to 30 days in juvenile hall, which was to be served over 15 weekends, and the third suspect was sentenced to 45 days to be served continuously. If they had been tried as adults, these sentences could have carried a maximum prison sentence of 10 years. These sentences were also much more lenient than the sentences that were handed down to the two 16-year-old boys in March of 2013 in Steubenville, Ohio, a case that has been widely compared to Audrey's. If you are not familiar with the Steubenville case, I'll quickly tell you about it. On August 12, 2012, two high school football players, Trent Mays and Malik Richmond, raped a 16-year-old girl who was intoxicated. During the trial, it was revealed that the victim left a party with four football players sometime around midnight. They went to a different party where it was reported that she vomited and appeared to be disoriented. About 20 minutes later, they left the party. But while in the backseat of the car, Mays digitally penetrated her vaginally and exposed her breasts while his friends filmed and photographed all of this. Once they arrived home, they brought her down to the basement where Mays attempted to orally rape the unconscious girl, who was by now naked. The second defendant, Richmond, then proceeded to also digitally penetrate her vaginally, of which they took more pictures. They then returned to the party and shared these photos and videos with their friends. There are so many disturbing details about all of the social media posts and messages about that case that I'm not really going to get into. And the victim of the case did testify, but really had no memory of what happened to her. These defendants were convicted, and they received the mandated minimum sentence, with the possibility of remaining in juvenile detention until the age of 21. Richmond, who was found guilty of digitally penetrating the girl while she was unconscious, which, under Ohio law, is rape by definition, and he was sentenced to a minimum of one year. Mays, who was found guilty of penetrating the girl while unconscious and distributing pornographic pictures, was sentenced to two years. The additional year is because the victim was a minor and the distribution of the pictures of a minor is considered distribution of child pornography. Now you might be thinking the Steubenville defendants had some relatively light sentences. That's a matter of opinion and of course welcome to debate. The juvenile justice system is generally lenient on children, so it doesn't surprise me. However, the Audrey Pott defendants were given drastically lighter sentences than in the Steubenville case. But you know and I know that justice is arbitrary. But what makes Audrey's attackers any less deserving of a punishment at least as harsh as a Steubenville case? Some speculate that it might be as simple as geography. The county where the boys in Audrey's case were prosecuted 
generally hands down more lenient sentences than other places. There might be other factors, including the fact that the Steubenville defendants took their case to trial while the boys in Saratoga pleaded guilty. Courts usually take that into consideration as well. Either way, according to one of the DAs on Audrey's case, the sentence may not seem like a serious punishment for an adult, but it is very serious for the juvenile system. Like I said, it's a matter of opinion. I'll be honest with all of you out there listening to this, but I can't help but be saddened and disappointed with the lenient sentence in Audrey's case. But at the time, could there have been a sentence that could somehow make this right? Even if they were charged as adults and sentenced to 10 years and placed on a predator registry for the rest of their lives, that wouldn't make me feel any better about the fact that the actions of these boys that night set in motion the events that culminated in Audrey's suicide. Maybe there are some that don't agree with me, that maybe the assault and suicide are unrelated, but I don't really see it that way. If the things those boys did never happened, I don't think Audrey would have hanged herself eight days later. In response to the civil lawsuit Audrey's parents brought, the defendant's attorney, in fact, attempted to deflect blame for Audrey's suicide elsewhere, namely onto her parents. Seems like an underhanded thing to do to try and save a client, don't you think? According to the court filings, her parents are at least partially to blame, as they, who they've been long divorced, either knew or should have known about Audrey's long-standing and serious emotional problems before her suicide, and they should have sought professional help. It had started to sound like it was going to be a contentious battle in terms of the civil lawsuit. However, in the end, all three of the boys' families settled the suit not only to the tune of $950,000, but there was a list of non-monetary terms of the settlement agreement as well. Those were as follows. Number one, admit the allegations as contained in the respective criminal complaints that pertain to Audrey Pott on the record and in the presence of Judge Walsh. Number two, publish the following apology. I, state your name, am truly sorry for your loss. I apologize that we said things and made it seem Audrey invited or encouraged these acts. We admit that we committed these acts and shared inappropriate images of Audrey to others. I apologize for initially denying these acts. Audrey was not conscious during the criminal acts that we committed and did not consent to what we did. Audrey did not consent nor was involved in any voluntary sexual acts that evening. I also apologize for false rumors about Audrey that served to shame or humiliate her. Audrey did not deserve, nor would any human being deserve, what we put Audrey through. She was a good and principled person who did not deserve what happened to her. We would like every teenager out there to understand that words about someone's character can have a life-altering effect. That taking advantage of an incapacitated human being is a crime each and every time. In memory of Audrey, 
I will participate and support a petition to the Saratoga High School Administration to give an honorary diploma to Audrey because my actions contributed to preventing her from graduating. I will also wholeheartedly support the mission statement of the Audrey Pott Foundation and I will support any effort made by the Audrey Pott Foundation to enact future laws to protect children from similar tragedies to positively impact young lives. Number three, make a public verbal apology consistent with the apology in item number two on the record in front of Judge Walsh. Each defendant will draft a verbal apology based on section two of this agreement and his sincere remorse. The Pot family must approve of the draft prior to each defendant making his verbal apology. Number four, each defendant must appear in the current production actual films and or Pot family choice of documentary for a 45 minute filmed interview. Provide an honest and open account of the events on September 2nd and the following week at a minimum does not conflict substantially with the deposition statements and or section two of this agreement. The interview will not show the defendant's faces or identify their names. Each defendant must complete their respective interview within 90 days of the execution of this agreement. Number five, allow use of the defendant's deposition videos subject to any court order already in place. The chosen deposition videos will not show the defendant's faces or identify their names. Number six, each defendant must give 10 presentations on the topics listed below in a question and answer format as moderated by a neutral selected person at any high school or similar youth organizations in the country at reasonable times and places. At least two of the 10 presentations must occur at a high school chosen by the Audrey Pott Foundation other than Saratoga High School or Christopher High School on the condition that the Audrey Pott Foundation arranges said speeches. The parties, the Audrey Pott Foundation and their representatives will not film the presentations or record in a way that shows their faces or identifies their names. The two presentations designated by the Audrey Pott Foundation must be completed within six months of the execution of this agreement. The eight presentations not designated by the Audrey Pott Foundation must be completed within two years of the execution of this agreement. Two years within the execution of this agreement, the defendant shall provide written confirmation of the completion of the tasks assigned in Section 6. The topics of the presentation shall include, but are not limited to, the following areas. Sexting, dissemination of nude photographs, soliciting nude photographs, slut-shaming and spreading rumors, dangers of alcohol and drugs. Number seven, in the event any of these terms are not fully complied with by any of the parties, William Gavin, as a neutral arbitrator, shall sanction the violating party at a minimum of $5,000 at a maximum of $100,000. Number eight, the terms of the settlement will be public. Any monetary settlement will reflect that it is being paid by the defendant's insurance companies. Number nine, complete all public apologies by Monday, April 6th. Number 10, reciprocal anti-defamation clause. 
The parties to this agreement and their lawyers, their lawyers' representatives, agents, servants, and or employees agree and represent that they will not falsely defame or slander each other at any time following the execution of this agreement. This includes not taking any action which could reasonably be expected to adversely affect the other's personal or professional reputation. The violation of this clause will be subject to Section 7 of this agreement. On September 20, 2014, California Governor Brown ratified Audrey's Law, a bill that reforms juvenile sex assault statutes in order to provide justice for victims by closing loopholes that have protected sex offenders instead of protecting the victims. Under Audrey's Law, courtrooms will be more transparent, allowing public access to hearings of juveniles who are prosecuted for sex assault against unconscious or developmentally disabled victims. Juveniles convicted of a specified sex assault would be required to complete a sex offender treatment program if there are suitable programs available in the county where the crime occurred. Almost all counties in California offer some type of rehabilitative programs. Juveniles convicted of rape, sodomy, or oral copulation will no longer have the option of paying a fine or participating in community service or a treatment program in order for charges to be dismissed. There were also a couple of other related bills also passed in 2014 that increase the statute of limitations for victims to press criminal charges and to file for civil damages against perpetrators. So before I finish this episode, I wanted to tell you that I struggled a lot with this one. I had a lot of anxiety about it. I know I've talked about sexual assault before in the past, but this one was different. With this, I wanted to talk about sexual assault and rape culture and suicide, and it did start to become really overwhelming. I wanted to make sure that I framed the story in a way that wasn't only gonna focus on the way high school students can be thoughtless and reckless with each other, with drinking, or with the power of social media. I didn't want all of this to be about how or why the things that happened to Audrey got spread around the school, that it's what caused her the humiliation she was experiencing when everybody learned of what happened through those pictures, gossip, and text messages, and that it's what led to the shaming and bullying. But rather, as one article I read put it quite perfectly, This is about how rape culture and toxic masculinity collided that night when those boys attacked Audrey. In Audrey's case, as well as the case in Steubenville, Ohio, these sexual assaults were both documented using cell phone cameras and distributed using various social media sites. And lately, there have been stories about how some have used live streaming apps in order to circulate the sexual assault and rapes of women. And then what ends up happening? The technology becomes the headline and the victim is sidelined. The conversation becomes more about the perils of social media and that it's what we should be afraid of. We somehow reach the conclusion that a phone app is where the rape and sexual assault is happening 
seemingly in the confines of digital media. And then the narrative becomes grossly misguided, becoming more about social media being the culprit rather than the real social issues at play. Parents begin feeling the need to warn their children about the risks of social media as opposed to the real problem. And in doing so, possibly giving young people the wrong idea that social media is a dangerous place and that rape and sexual assault wouldn't be that much of a reality if it weren't for technology. But what technology has done is it's made these things very real for everyone. Before cell phones and before social media, we didn't see these things unfold on our tiny little digital screens. They weren't passed around for each other to see on their devices, but now we can. We can look on our phones and see these things actually happening. So we want to turn around and tell our kids that social media is dangerous. We start blaming cell phones and Instagram or Periscope because in their minds, somehow these things trigger the assault. We tell them to not send or share explicit photos of one another, to beware of this app or that app. And what's truly at the heart of the problem has overlooked. So in telling Audrey's story, yes, the fact is the pictures of her assault were circulated to the kids at her school by the boys who did that to her. And the fact is they took those pictures and spread them around is indeed the reason why Audrey was humiliated to the point she felt her life was ruined and not worth living anymore. But there was, and is, a bigger problem than pictures and social media, and that is those boys who committed the assault. They are the only ones responsible for what happened that night. Not Audrey, not alcohol, not social media. Those three teenagers violated her without her consent. They, and only they, are to blame. I also wanted to make sure that it's clear that the blame is placed squarely on those who assaulted Audrey. Yes, I talked about how intoxicated Audrey was when she was assaulted, but those are just part of the facts of the story. And I want it to be understood that her level of intoxication is irrelevant, completely irrelevant. And what about her taking her own life? Are they to blame for her suicide too? Well, they were held responsible legally in their wrongful death lawsuits brought against them. So in a sense, yes. But is it really all their fault? The defendant's attorney laid some of the blame upon her parents for not recognizing their daughter was troubled prior to the night that she was attacked with pictures of her going around the school. But to me, I can't help but think we wouldn't even be talking about Audrey Pot if not for what those boys did to her that night and in the days following. Eight days. Eight days of torment. That was all she could bear. Audrey's story is a difficult one to tell, but with everything that's been going on lately, with all sorts of accusations of sexual assault and sexual harassment coming to light, it's something that needs to be addressed. We simply can't keep on being okay with sexual violence, excusing it as if it's a normal way to be 
perpetuating it with misogynistic language, objectification of women, and glorifying sexual violence. In doing so, we construct a society that exists in complete and utter disregard for women's safety, and not to mention women's rights. We need to keep ourselves in check by not propagating a culture that's accepting of sexual violence by doing such things as a victim blaming, trivializing sexual assault, making sexually explicit jokes, tolerating sexual harassment of any kind, or scrutinizing the victim. What she was wearing, what was her state of mind, what her motives may have been, or her sexual history. Labeling manhood as being aggressive and dominant and sexually charged, and labeling womanhood as submissive and subservient and sexually passive, putting pressure on men to score, making the assumption that promiscuous women are the ones who get raped, following that up with slut-shaming when they are assaulted, refusing to take rape accusations seriously, thinking that the solution to sexual violence is to teach women how to avoid being raped, as well as having the mindset that men don't get raped or that only men who are weak are raped. Victim blaming is only one of many things that happened to Audrey. She was labeled, accused by others of somehow allowing herself to be in that situation in an attempt to distance themselves from the terrible things that happened to her. They tell themselves that this had to be her fault. If this were them, this wouldn't have happened. This marginalized Audrey, and doing so makes it very difficult for survivors to come forward. Something Audrey never did. She never reported the assault to any adult. She were made to feel so unsafe, ashamed, and afraid of coming forward. And I wish she could have. I kind of think if she did, she'd still be here today. And not only does this silence the victim when they feel like they're to blame, it allows the attacker to commit these sexual assaults without any culpability for their actions. Never forget, sexual assault is a conscious decision made by the attacker and the attacker alone. Those three boys that attacked Audrey had the choice to walk away from her, to leave her there, to not lay a hand on her, and allow her to sleep it off so the worst thing she had to wake up to would be a hangover. But these three boys couldn't do that. No matter what Audrey was doing downstairs, no matter who she was making out with, no matter how much she had to drink, no matter what she said, they took it upon themselves to violate her because of their overblown senses of entitlement to do whatever they wanted to do to an unconscious girl. And once everyone validated the actions of these boys at school the next day by spreading those pictures, laughing and joking, and shaming Audrey, the chances of her seeking help completely diminished. Now more than ever, we need to make sure that we don't feed into the culture that perpetuates sexual violence. We need to avoid objectifying and degrading women. We need to speak up when we hear or see someone making offensive jokes or trivializing sexual assault, sexual violence, and sexual harassment. Victims need to be supported. They need to be listened to. They need to be understood and they need to be taken seriously. 
we need to really think hard about the messages that we are sending through the media, including social media, about the dynamics between women, men, relationships, and violence, and make sure that we speak about these issues, and when we do, we choose our words wisely. We need to respect one another, respect a person's personal space, respect their physical space in every situation. We need to constantly remind survivors of sexual violence that they are not to blame for what happened to them. And at the same time, make sure that we hold abusers and attackers accountable for their actions by not allowing them to excuse their behavior by blaming the victim or blaming alcohol or drugs for their choices. Be in charge of defining your own womanhood or your own manhood, and never allow yourself to feel like you have to live up to absurd societal stereotypes. Make sure, in situations like Audrey's, that you just don't be a passive bystander. Don't be afraid to step in when things look very wrong. My favorite example lately, again, is that Brock Turner rapist. Those two passers-by who saw something not right happening to an unconscious woman behind a dumpster. They took action and stopped Turner's attack. And lastly, never assume consent. Make sure the communication is crystal clear before moving forward. Also in discussing this topic, I don't want to come off as attacking men either. I do absolutely feel that the majority of men are not violent. So men listening, please don't take any of what I said thus far as a personal attack. I would not ever want to displace the accountability for violent behavior from those who are truly responsible by perpetuating the idea that all men are violent. Those men are clearly the minority. However, both men and women can help work towards raising awareness and combating sexual violence against both men and women. So here are the facts. Women, men, and children across all ages, races, religions, and economic classes can and have been victims of sexual violence. It happens in big cities and small towns and rural areas. An estimated one in three girls and one in six boys will experience some form of sexual assault by the time they're 18. In the United States, a rape or an attempted rape occurs every five minutes. A victim of sexual assault is never to be blamed for what happened to her or him. Sexual assault is an extremely violent crime, not a crime of sexual passion. It's motivated by hostility, power and control over another person, not by desire. Humans, unlike animals, are very much capable of controlling their sexual urges. It is incredibly degrading and humiliating for the victim, and no one ever asked or deserved for this to happen to him or her. Most, upwards of 80 or 90% of sexual assaults are committed by someone the victim is familiar with, and despite the fact that a sexual assault can occur anywhere, more often than not, it happens in places that are usually safe, like at home or in a car or at the workplace. And when it comes to the truthfulness of reported sexual assaults, most of them are true, 
with very few exceptions. 2% of all reported rape cases are false, and this is the same rate of false reporting as all other major violent crimes. Men can be and are also victims of sexual violence. It is thought that approximately one in six men are sexually assaulted in their lifetime. However, it is believed that sexual assaults against men is significantly underreported. There is no archetype for a sexual offender. They come from a wide range of educational, occupational, racial, and cultural backgrounds. They are very likely your average normal everyday person. And anytime anyone is forced to have sex against their will, they've become a victim of sexual assault, no exceptions. Whether or not they fought back or said no, there are plenty of reasons why someone may not attempt to fend off an attack. Fear, shock, threats, self-preservation. And lastly, there is no one way a survivor copes with the trauma of a sexual assault. There is a spectrum of responses. They can be seemingly calm, happy, angry, apathetic, shocked. Everyone is different. But all the same, they need support, compassion, understanding, and mostly, they need to be heard. And that brings this 31st episode of California Dreaming to a close. Please feel free to leave me feedback on Facebook on the discussion page or on Twitter or Instagram as well. Like I said, I was overwhelmed in writing this. And I'm afraid I might have left something out or said something wrong or said something insensitive and I really want to know. And that way I can address those things at the beginning of the next episode so I can clear all of that up. I do love hearing from all of you and I appreciate your feedback, especially on sensitive topics such as this. So anyway, to the housekeeping stuff. California Dreaming has found a home on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We have joined forces with an amazing group of podcast shows and hosts, including The Concession Stand, Busted Wide Open, Super Nerds UK, The Dirty Bits, Historium, Is This Adulting, 410 Owned, and Film Roast. You can find all of us on www.orbitaljigsaw.com. And guess what? we also have launched the Orbital Jigsaw Podience Facebook group. All of us from Orbital Jigsaw are there, along with a bunch of other hosts from some of your favorite shows and some of our biggest and best podcast listeners and fans. It's more than just talking about our show, but rather it's an interactive group where we share ideas, articles, and news about all things podcast and social media related, and much, much more. It's a fun place to get new ideas, share your experiences as both a host and a listener, and to find out what's working and what doesn't work. It's a supportive, inclusive, drama-free group. Search Orbital Jigsaw Podience, spelled P-O-D-I-E-N-C-E, and request to join. You can also find links to the Orbital Jigsaw Network merchandise store. You can get your California Dreaming t-shirt, mug, throw pillow, phone case, tote bag, and more. Every purchase 
supports the creation of this show. You can also visit the California Dreaming Patreon, where for as little as a dollar a month, you can gain access to bonus content and early releases and other perks such as stickers and magnets. Thank you to everyone who continues to pledge support to the show. I've been able to more consistently bring bonus episodes and keep a lookout for a Patreon episode I'm working on right now, coming very, very soon. And as always, thank you again for listening. Every week the download numbers are slowly but surely rising, and I appreciate all of you continuing to listen and helping to spread the word about the show. And until next time, sweet dreams.